Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program on 101.9 Chai FM. My guest today is Philip Weyers. Philip was with me last week, but we were cut off for a while, and so we decided to redo that section today. But there's always something to talk about anyway. Philip is General Smuts's great-grandson. He and I related through marriage. We have the same aunt and uncle and the same cousins. So it's lovely to have you on my program again, Phil, even though it's only a week. I'm sorry we didn't manage to get through everything last week. How are you this week? Good morning, Cos. I'm well, thank you. And all the better for seeing your face through my laptop screen, <laughs> not in person, but uh, we'll make do with what we have. Yeah, we How do. are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks, Phil. You know, um, Peter Bailey has just sent me a message to say that 21 of the IDF soldiers were killed yesterday. And I would like to dedicate this program to all the hostages and their families and all the families of the IDF who have been killed. We, we, our thoughts and our prayers are with you. Unfortunately, this is a war that has to be won and there are going to be a lot of lives lost. But the hostages have already been held for three plus months. I, I mean, who on earth holds hostages for that long? You know, um, Douglas Murray, who uh, uh, I know you also follow him, he's a British author and political commentator. He said, most of the people who think they know how to execute Israel's war against Hamas have never executed a war. Indeed, most people who think they know exactly how the IDF should be running in this conflict have never even been near a conflict. Isn't that true? Hundred percent correct. Mm. Absolutely true. There are the one, the one negative. Before I get to the negative, though, I just want to say that the, the families and friends of the hostages, I feel desperately for. I feel for my friends in Israel, who all, all of whom, in my family in Israel, all of whom have somebody, um, who has been deployed, and then those who have lost somebody, whether in the. 7th of October or subsequently in, uh, in the army actions, I feel terribly for all of them. I really, really do. Um, so this is one of the creations, sadly, of uh, social media. Mm. Um, what used to be called Twitter and is now called X uh, is the most venomous place on the entire planet. Why do you, you say that, Phil? So there, there's the vehemence, the absolute vehemence and hatred that bile that pours out on X, at this stage, very much anti-Israel. It would be the, the, the trend. There's a valiant fight being made by many Israelis and Jews around the world and those who are not Jews around the world on the part of Israel and as I, as I try to do myself. But after a few forays onto X, one, one of them with a South African PhD who is 
something involved with human sciences. Um, she asked me if I didn't feel about the loss or feel for the loss of Palestinian children. Of course I do. Mm. The loss of a single child is one child too many, Absolutely. by far. Mm. And I see my little grandchildren and, I mean, it doesn't be bear thinking about. But what is Israel to do? Are they supposed to sit back in their kibbutzes, rebuild them, and then wait for them to be burnt down and for the people to be barbarically assaulted and raped and murdered again? Mm. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't. It can't work like that. And, you know, Hillel Fould on uh, LinkedIn was saying, he said, what would the United States or any other country do if the equivalent of October the 7th happened on its soil? Let's say Mexico. If the people of Mexico democratically elected a terrorist organization that declares that it will destroy America and kill all Americans anywhere in the world, how would America respond? Now, pretend that that government sent in tens of thousands of rockets that landed on American soil. One morning, that government, totally unprovoked, sent in thousands of terrorists that butchered, massacred, raped, maimed tens of thousands of American civilians, the equivalent of 1,200 Israelis proportionately. Imagine that they took thousands of American hostages, including babies, women and children, who they then tortured, raped and used for psychological warfare against the United States. What would America do on the equivalent of their October the 7th? And he goes on to talk about declaring war, cutting off all aid, totally flattening Mexico. So, you know, Phil, that is the reality. But unfortunately, it's not how people see it. You are a, no. you are a great friend of Israel and the Jewish people and my cousin. And, uh, you know, we really need friends like you now. What is it Thank about... You. Israel that you love? I think the people. I think the guts, the balls, the determination. Um, I think what Israel has provided mankind. Every time I plug a, I did it last night, I plug a flash drive into my computer, it's a sand disk. It's Israeli. Mm. Um, the finest um, navigation system that I know, the one I enjoy the most, is Waze. That's Israeli. Mm. It was so good, in fact, that Google had to buy it. <laughs> um, and th there are so, so many other things. Um, I, I think as well that uh, there's there are two other elements. The one is ancestral conviction, if I could put it that way. Mm. My great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father, my mother. And so I never grew up with any uh, anti-Semitic bias. There was none of that in my house at all. And in fact, I'm not sure if I remember to mention last week, um, a number of the judges on the Pretoria bench and advocates at the Pretoria bar before that were very close friends of my father. Mm. Not least of all, probably most of all, uh, Judge Henry Price, who was an absolutely wonderful gentleman. And so I didn't have this bias. And then if you read about the convictions uh, that the Obas had in terms of why Israel should exist, it all makes solid sense to me. On, on a number of levels. When, when Philip know, talks about the Obas, for people who are not in South Africa or not from South Africa, that is General Jan Smuts that he's talking about, his, gran, his great-grandfather. So that's the Obas. 
Sue, just, just to qualify that as well, um, the term OBOS is not one apartheid-based old master. It is what the family, the children and grandchildren called him. Yeah. They called him OBOS. Mm. Um, so there's nothing, it's, it's a family term, nothing more than that. But he was, having grown up as a, as a fairly conservative Calvinist, um, with his uh, also equally conservative, obviously, parents, um, he read as I did. Where, where the Jews came from. Mm. And he was quite convinced about that. And if he, with his intellect and, uh, and so on, was, was, was convinced, then why should I not be? And of course, I did, I did my own reading and I've been supplied with um, mountains of information um, by yourself, um, <laughs> by Peter Bailey, our mutual, very dear friend, um, Joel Klotnik in Renana, and a number of others who have, have provided me with so much useful information which has seek to reinforce my, my point of view. We'll get back to that. Thank you, Phil. Thanks, Craig. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program, and my guest today is Philip Bayers. Philip is General Jan Smuts's great-grandson, if you'd like to SMS us, you can on 34519 or you can telegram us on 061-895-1019. Last week, Philip and I were together and we were cut off for a while. If you'd like to pick up that podcast, it actually came through quite well, I thought. And um, you can pick it up on either the High FM podcast section on Google or you can Google Sue Jackson High FM YouTube on YouTube, and we are there. Now, uh, Phil, going back to the OBOS, to General Smuts, um, my friend Les Erwig uh, sent me, he looked on Wikipedia, funny enough, and he sent me this about uh, Jan Smuts. Thank you so much, Les. I really appreciate it. I'd, I picked up a lot of other, obviously, you know, like you say, that we, we supply you with what's going on in Israel. Well, you supply me with what's going on with the Obas. So this, I really appreciated him sending me this. It says the history of um, United Nations. Um, in 1965, the stamp of the United Nations with the preamble to the charter. There's a picture. I'm showing it to you. All right. And it's the history. It says, um, Jan Smuts from South Africa originally wrote the opening lines of the preamble as the high contracting parties determined to prevent a recurrence of the uh, fratricidal strife, which twice in our generation has brought untold sorrow and loss upon mankind. And... Um, he coined the phrase human rights. Now he tell, did indeed. And uh, tell me a bit, the preamble reads as follows, we the peoples of the United Nations determined, and it goes on to save succeeding generations. Unfortunately, that has not happened at all. And I don't even know if the United Nations is capable of putting that forward anymore. What do you think, Phil? Sue, I think... There's the old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I think the, the UN is, um, in all probability, a case in point. Um, starting at the Security Council, when, and it is from what Colonel Charles 
Cromley uh, told me a couple of years ago before he died, um, and I've not been able to test the veracity of it, was that the veto in the Security Council um, and which the permanent members enjoy was the idea of the OBAS. And that and was I- also on this Wikipedia, by the way, the veto, the proposal by the OBAS. Mm. Oh, is it it's on Wikipedia? Yeah. Well, I would never argue with Charles and Wikipedia, so I'm convinced. <laughs> um, and the reason for that was no veto, no Russia, no Russia, no United Nations. And Russia was then, certainly in the eyes of the Obas and Churchill at that stage, uh, very much the, the greatest evil in the world, um, being, or being faced by the world in communism. Um, and that is all good and well, but what it does mean is that when Russia... Um, attacks um, Ukraine, they are able to exercise their power of veto to um, negate any security council decisions. Hmm. Um, the other fact is that I think the, the United Nations in terms of the General Assembly and, and its operational arms and here particularly UNRWA, hmm. which is the the Educa- UN the Agency and Relief Works, mm. or the Relief, Relief and Works Agency, sorry, um, dedicated to the Palestinian refugees. And I think the intentions there, again, are very good. But UNRWA has become a tool, and I've seen evidence of this, that they are employing members of Hamas, mm. um, that... Doctors and surgeons in UNRWA hospitals in Gaza are um, paid for by UNRWA, are members of Hamas, mm. combatants. Mm. And that sort of fails the, the whole acid test, doesn't it? And even um, in the schools, they're teaching, uh, you know, hating the Jews and Israel and doing away with it in the UNRWA schools. And also the hidden um, tunnels and weaponry in those schools, I mean, I found it t- horrific what they've been finding. Yeah, it's, it's awful. If my if my little eight-year-old grandson was made to march around with a wooden AK-47 dressed in camouflage, um, I mean, what what's the world coming to? Yet there, it's normal. Mm-hmm. Um, it is absolutely normal. How sad. Uh, How sad for those little no, children a, not to have a, a fun-filled childhood. No, and, and the world... The world, when I say the world, I'm generalizing grossly, but the world doesn't see this. Mm-mm. And it's excusable when they do see it. And you There's know, an excuse for it. you said something very fascinating last week, and I wanted to ask you about it. You said that Thomas Sell, I had said to you that I had read somewhere that it said, no Jews, no news. And you told me about Thomas Sell and um, how, how the Jews would be accepted. Do you remember? I recall that very well. It's it's on YouTube, uh, mm. sort on YouTube. And mm. um, now we need to bear in mind that this is a black American, oh. um, um, Thomas Howell, mm. and he was asked in an interview. This goes back years already. He was asked, "What must the Jews do to be accepted and better liked?" And he said, "It's really simple. They must fail." Mm. It's quite simple. So they had to be if victims. You, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Huh. If you look at, and it's been widely distributed at the moment, um, the list that the BDS folk are putting out of companies that they should boycott, 
look at the with either Jewish owned or with Jewish connections. Mm. Um, look at those companies. What would we be without them? And look how many hundreds they employ. Absolutely. Mm. You know, I mean, from a very personal point of view, I happen to love Diskim. I know the chairman of Diskim, who's an absolutely delightful gentleman. Um, and I just love Diskim. They've <laughs> never let me down in my life. If absolutely. I, uh, customer service is brilliant, now we must boycott Diskim. Mm. So th there was, in fact, a, a post on, on this venomous, and I'm telling you, uh, X, the platform, <laughs> is more venomous than a small pit full of gaboon adders. It is so toxic. Mm, and mm. they said that they were encouraging their membership, a Muslim organization based in Cape Town, saying that their members should no longer buy non-dispensary items from Diskin. Hmm. So I responded in one of those rare moments when I actually build up the guts to walk into the, the cesspit. <laughs> and I said, well, why, don't you, why are you restricted to non-dispensary items? Don't buy your medications there as well. Absolutely. Let's see how, let's see how you go with that. Mm, you mm. know, um, another one, Discovery. Discovery have paid, have paid millions to keep my heart going, never batting an eyelid. You know, how can uh, I, they saved my life on at least three occasions? Mm, um, mm. You know, and these are the people that you're supposed to boycott. I mean, at what there's, point do you cut off your nose to spite your face? There's just no sense to it when you look at the poverty in our country as as it is. Um, and then to still boycott and have more people out of jobs, it just doesn't make sense at all. You know, uh, Phil, we're going to go on to something uh, more cheerful as well. But I, I wanted to just say that, you know, you say that... Um, uh, Thomas Sowell was a, 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 a black American um, yes. man. Well, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, peace for Israel means security, and that security must be a reality. And that Absolutely. comes from Martin Luther King Jr. Absolutely. And so therefore we have got to fight for our, our homeland. Now, talking about a homeland, actually, no, I just want to go back to, to your grandfather first, to General Smuts. Um, last week, we started talking about from hatred to healing, and we mentioned Nazi Germany and, and the six million Jews killed there and many, many other nationalities, and how now they are taking Israel's side against the charge of genocide, which has been put forward by South Africa. Um, they are siding with Israel. So it is from a, a foe to a friend. And then Churchill, we discussed, he was once imprisoned by General Smuts in South Africa, and they became the greatest of friends and key players in World War Two. Uh, and then you also mentioned uh, Leto Furbeck from the German East Africa in World War One and World War Two. Then Gandhi. I love the story about Gandhi. Tell me a bit about Gandhi and your grandfather. Sumai, Gandhi arrived in South Africa and as he'd been briefed on a case. And at the time, climbed onto a, a, a whites-only train from which he was removed. And sort of escalated from there with his peaceful resistance. And the Obas eventually <laughs> had him thrown into jail. Um, but the interesting thing there 
and subsequent years bear, bear the, the point of view out. Gandhi and the Obas never disliked each other and they always had respect for each other. When Gandhi was in jail, he made the Obas a pair of sandals, mm. handmade, <laughs> which the Obas wore, I believe, for years afterwards. And then decided to give them back to Gandhi and said that he was not worthy to walk in shoes that Gandhi had made. And the Obas also said that it was his misfortune to be the antagonist of Gandhi. Hmm. And it's also interesting that in later years, with the partition um, of India and, Pal and, and Pakistan, um, Churchill was not keen on Indians and even less keen on Gandhi. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, he didn't like any of them particularly, and Gandhi most of all. And Gandhi then wrote to the Obas and said, you should better intervene in this, please, because if I and my followers are not included in this partition deal, there will be no deal. And the Obas dutifully said to Churchill, you better wind your neck in a bit. And, uh, <laughs> he was and the only one who could say that to Churchill, yeah. He probably was, yeah, uh, other than Clementine, yeah, I yeah. agree with you. Um, and, and that's in, in fact what transpired. Um, as we know, the, it wasn't an entirely happy marriage, the, the partition. Um, Kashmir remains today um, under great dispute, and they fire shots at each other every once in a while, India and Pakistan. But uh, certainly with, without Gandhi, they were, it would have not got to that stage. And without the Obas, Churchill would probably have ignored Gandhi and his tens of millions of followers. Mm -hmm. So they, they, they had a great and healthy respect for, uh, for each other. They never did do tea, unfortunately. I think that would have been very nice had that been possible. Um, but, um, you know, that's, that's another culture that is immensely old and so worthy of taking seriously the Indian culture. And they, mm. I, I love them. I think they're lovely people. I uh, happen to enjoy their cuisine very much as well. So uh, I think they're, they're superhuman beings. You know, uh, a letter from Gandhi to General Smuts said that in, in this letter, Gandhi urges Smuts to take the Indian question more seriously. But perhaps the most important thing about this content is the tone. Of all the letters between Smuts and Gandhi, this is perhaps the most forthright. And it actually gives a good sense of how Gandhi was able to approach Smuts. So obviously he felt he would be heard and he approached him like that. And then uh, this little thing about the sandals, it said the extract from the essential Gandhi records, uh, what Smut said to the Mahatma when he returned the sandals, he had given him decades earlier. Um, his work in South Africa finished. Gandhi left South Africa with his life, wife in 1914. And before he departed, he sent General Smuts a pair of the, of the sandals, as you said, as a gift. Smuts wore the sandals every summer at his farm and then returned the sandals to Gandhi on Gandhi's 70th birthday. <laughs> and Smuts remarked, I have worn these sandals for many a summer, even though I may feel that I'm not worthy to stand in the shoes of so great a man. It was my fate to, the, uh, to be the antagonist of a man for whom even then I had the highest respect. And uh, which that that was what was written. Um, Phil, it's a tell, nice story. It is. It's, I love that story actually. 
and I've been through Gandhi's house here in Johannesburg. We were always told that our house was part of uh, somewhere where Kalimbach and Gandhi had lived, but that's kind of been disputed. But um, but my grandchildren still enjoy that story. Um, of course. Now tell me about um, Chaim Weissman's relationship with the Obos. So after German East Africa, the Obos went to the Imperial Conference in in London, and General von Deventer took over the uh, the action in uh, in German East Africa. And while he was there, the Obos was asked to remain behind and in fact in, he was offered first of all the um, the command of Palestine which he turned down oh. and it was given subsequently to Ger General Allenby mm. but while he was there and um, joined the the Imperial War Cabinet um, he met Dr. Chaim Weizmann he was a, a, a genius like the Obas um, a brilliant physicist who was immensely um, important in the British war effort uh, on the explosive side and the two of them hit it off and what did they connect through do you think I think one of the things they connected through um, was the whole um, aspect of Zionism I've no doubt that that was one of the one of the founding um, points of commonality that they had because the Obas um, Theodor Herzl, as we know, started the, the, the movement mm. and Chaim Weizmann took over that over from him and Theodor Herzl never sadly got to see his dream realized. But the Obos were so in sync with that. I think they got on as individuals um, and I think intellectually they, they were at a, a very common level. My mom and once told me, you know, Phil, that the that General Smuts had written, had read the Old Testament in uh, in in the, uh, Greek in Greek in English and I, I don't think she said Hebrew I don't know but but he apparently could quote huge sections of the Old Testament. Well, so the um, when the Obos was on his foray into the Cape at the end of the Boer War looking for support um, immediately prior to um, to the cessation of hostilities, he had in his saddlebags a Greek Bible and he used to read it. And one of the, what, what you know, before the days of television and the block and days of our lives or whatever it is that people watch these days, um, <laughs> Opa and Omar in the big house mm -hmm. used to play a game and the one would start a Bible passage and the other would be expected to complete it mm. but in Greek so it had to be done in Greek and so th that's I mean I, I, I battle with, with English forget about <laughs> having and fifth languages um, so I, to my knowledge he didn't he, he didn't he wasn't able to read or converse in Hebrew mm. um, but Weizmann and the Obas were um, we're very close friends, and in fact, um, the last trip the Obas ever made out of South Africa was to London the year before he died, in fact, some months before he died, to make a speech at Chaim Weizmann's 75th birthday party. Mm -mm. We're, going to get, against we're going to get back to that in a moment. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. 
Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program on 101.9 Chai FM. My guest today is Philip Veyers. And if you'd like to contact us and uh, contribute to our conversation, please do so on 34519 SMS or Telegram 031895. Uh, what's it? I've got a blank. 8951019. Okay, sorry. Thanks, Craig. Um, Phil, I'm back with you. Philip is a relation of mine. And we were talking about General Smuts's relationship with Chaim Weissman and how the last trip he ever took out of South Africa was actually to go to London for Chaim Weissman's birthday. Is that right, did you say? That, that is 100% correct. Um, it is against doctors and doctor's orders and the wishes of his family but he was absolutely determined hmm. and uh, and and off he went to london where he did do the speech and i think it was something in the order of eight months later that that he died hmm. um do you have a copy of the speech it was a copy ever made i do oh i do have I'd a love copy to of it, hear yeah. it i do have this the script absolutely and um, hmm. i'll mail it to you okay great now um so they had them it was he churchill uh weissman they all seemed to have this common uh way that they could talk to each other they were brilliant men all of them really and they were the men of their time was when they were most needed i wish we could find a few more right now you know going back to um the uh, enemies becoming friends my grandfather, um, Norman Neil Webster, um, was, of course, General Smuts's, uh, we would call it Machetenister, Angetrader um, Familie. Uh, and um, the strange, the funny thing was, is, I was thinking about it, about these strangers, I mean, enemies who become friends. My grandfather fought for the British. He was, a, he was a, probably about 18 when the Boer War was on. And he fought for the British. And actually, his sister won an OBE, Order of the British Empire, for riding behind enemy lines, which would have been General Smuts's lines, to go and deliver a, a warning to the British troops on the other side. And she was riding a, a horse. And that's what she used to do. So she was given an OBE. And then Uncle Yanni and Auntie Daphne met each other. Auntie Daphne, being my mother's sister, um, was came from a, a British stock where they had fought for the British. Now here, your grandfather had to put up with, General Smuts had to put up with this new daughter-in-law whose father had fought him in the <laughs> Boer War. And they got on incredibly well. As a matter of fact, in the Second World War, when my uncle was reported missing up at Tobruk, it was General Smuts who sent the jeeps out looking and uh, to find them. The story goes that Uncle Yanni, our mutual uncle, yours and mine, was actually on one of the, the jeeps when he found his brother-in-law who was crawling across the desert with his platoon escaping. Mm. And I've never been able to verify that story, but it was a hell of a good story. But um, so Omar Smuts had had a terrible experience in the war, um, in, in with with the British in the Boer War. Tell me a bit about that. 
Sushi was exiled to from Pretoria, where she lived in Troy Street, to a camp in Peter Maritzburg, um, where she did not suffer the same deprivations as the other Boer women, elderly children, and let me say, black South Africans who were also interned in camp, interning camps. Now, this was um, the first concentration camp, wasn't it? Yeah, that is, those are the concentration camps, yeah. Mm. And she went down. There's one in Irene where I grew up as well. Um, and she, it took her a lot longer. She lost three children during that time. Oh. Uh, two just before the Boer War and one during the Boer War. Hmm. Um, so my grandmother, who was the first to survive, was in fact the fourth child. Gosh. Um, and she didn't have, as I say, the same deprivations as, as the other uh, inmates of the camp um, but she had a daily inspection where they'd come and see that she was behaving herself and wasn't up to anything clandestine or um, and what she what she had done was there were certain papers that were uh, confidential and should not f fall into British hands and she rolled them into tubes and put them into the curtain rods mm. which were bamboo and those bamboo curtain rods are still in the big house in Irene today. Yes, I saw um, them. <laughs> but but she she hated the British with such a passion mm. um, that she determined that all her children would be born under the Fiedkler, the Transvaal Republic flag. Mm. And so it was. They all were. Oh, even There's Uncle a, Yanni. A flag, uh, every single one of them. The flag was hung behind, on the wall behind the bed. Yeah. Um, each of her children was born. Gosh. And then... Then came the great indignity, and Oma had to, shall we say, change her ways and her allegiances and her feelings. The second daughter, Katu, Katerina, mm. married a guy called Bancroft Clark. Oh, that's right, yes. was to become the uh, chief executive, the MD, and then later the chairman of Clark's Shoes in England, mm. um, the Clark's mm. dynasty. And or as the Americans say about the program, the dynasty. So anyway, very English. He was very English then. Very much, and mm. uh, lived down in the West Country in, in Somerset, where they make scrumpy, which is the most glorious nectar on the planet, <laughs> and and all Quakers. Oh so, wow! Yeah, they uh, they they tended to, uh, shall we say, take a a, a tipple surreptitiously. Because <laughs> strictly speaking, they didn't drink. Yes. Very difficult when there's scrumpy on the table. But um, Omar then came around, and uh, and in fact, she, I think, had the same level of affection for for the British and the English um, as the Obas did uh, in later years. Um, Kathleen, the foster, the foster daughter. Mm. Um, was married to, uh, was engaged to a fellow called Peter Burns' father, Clutty, who was on the aircraft that crashed at Kusumi on uh, Kusumu on Victoria, killing General Dan Pinar. Ah, um, ah. And he was English speaking. And then Louis, Louis and Delaray Smuts, the youngest daughter, um, she married a guy called Dennis McEldowie. That's right. Um, yeah. Certainly not a name that would find one would find commonly in Bloemfontein. So, <laughs> you know, so we're going to get back to the other children. <laughs> this is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on one hundred one point nine High FM. 
Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and my guest today is Philip Bayers. And we, 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 the time is going so quickly. We were going to talk about his migration <laughs> to, to Brisbane, but we'll do that another time. But you can SMS us on 34519 or telegram us on 061-895-1019. Um, Phil, you know, uh, a friend of mine said what she would like me to, to actually tell is the story of... Um, because you were talking about the, the uh, Omar Smuts's children and General Smuts's children marrying uh, out of the faith <laughs> and marrying out of the language uh, and the culture, which is really amazing that she, you know, she accepted all of that. And then, of course, our, our mutual uncle Yanni married Daphne, uh, my mom's sister. And, uh, you know, we, on a funny note, when, when Leon, my husband and I got married, we were different faith, of course, and we had to, we were told we had to get married in court. And my mother was not having her daughter marrying in court. It was just an indignity that she was not prepared to put up with. And the magistrate refused to come to the house. So my mother used the smuts card. And she, the, the magistrate in those days in Verenigen happened to be a United Party uh, follower. And my mother said, well, it's such a pity that uh, you're not prepared to come to my home because my brother-in-law is going to be there. And the, you know, the, the um, magistrate was not particularly interested. He said, well, you know, bring him to the court. She said, how can I possibly bring my, my brother-in-law, Yanni Smuts, to the court? Well, we got married at my parents' home. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the magistrate decided he wanted to meet Uncle Yanni. He's frozen for now. Phil, you've frozen again, which is what happens every now and again. And I wanted to discuss with him um, the Abraham Accords, the series of agreements to normalize relations between Israel and several Arab states. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson and my guest, Philip Bayers. We've actually lost a bit of signal again, but I would like to just say that Elie Wiesel said, religion is not man's relationship to God. It is man's relationship to man. And I think that is so important for us to remember. You're going to be listening to a, a song called Soul Shine. And um, it said, in a time when the world needs it most, this song around the world serves as a beacon of hope and a reminder that music transcends borders and unites us all. Thank you, Judy Erwick, for sending it. I really appreciate it, Jude. And the words say, soul shine is better than sunshine, better than moonshine, and better than rain. When the world seems dark, let your spirit take control and do your soul shine. Thank you so much, Philip, for being with me. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, McCundy. And thank you, Vusi.